If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 10, 13 through 16. We're going to begin by taking a little pop quiz. Now, the trick to this pop quiz is answering it not what you think it should be, what you hope it would be, or what you want it to appear to be to someone else. Try to be as honest and real as possible. We're going to start with fathers. Fathers, which best describes you in changing diapers? Now, if you're done with that, if you're out of the diaper age, what did describe you? Uh, A, diapers? What are diapers? B, Johnny, come here. Go tell your mommy that you need a diaper change. Wait, 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 wait. This conversation is just between you and me. Uh, What's that? Yeah, I did that. Uh, The first time I did that, Cal went leaving saying, yes, I understand that. I understand. Mommy, daddy says I need a diaper change. (laughs) C, I am the diaper warrior. I am the first on the field of battle and I am the last to leave. Which one describes you fathers? Okay, good. Mothers, which answer best describes you at 6 p.m. on weekday evenings or described you at one time? Uh, A, I hear voices. I hear little voices everywhere. I can't get them out of my head. B, your husband comes home and sees the living room a complete mess. Epic proportions. Laundry, There is no longer a laundry room. The laundry room is now the hallway, moving into the bedrooms. It's swallowing up the whole bottom part of your house. Uh, You have one child in one arm. You have another child wrapped around your leg, and you have another child screaming for apple juice at the counter. And with your free hand, you're working the stove, the oven, and what else is there in the kitchen? The microwave, maybe? (laughs) I'm just proving my point, aren't I? Good night. Uh, At the same time, while you're preparing dinner, right? And your husband says... With somewhat sarcasm, maybe a hint of accusation. What did you do today, honey? Yeah. Uh, How did you respond? A, with overflowing, bountiful love for your man, and you give him a warm kiss on the lips. B, you think to yourself, I should have gotten more done today. My husband's right. Uh, Getting a lot done, being productive, having a house sparkle is the meaning of life and parenting. I resolve this day to play less with the kids, to listen less, read less, instruct less, love less, serve less, meet their needs less, have less of a relationship with my children. Honey, see, you have instantaneous thoughts of breaking the sixth commandment. (laughs) Thou shall not murder, for those of you that are just a tad behind. Singles, which answer best describes your take on children? Whenever my desire for sexual purity wanes, I babysit. Presto, I'm cured. No more temptation to sexual sin. B, cute from a distance, annoying up close, avoid all contact until you must have them. And then C, my singleness allows me the opportunity to embody the gospel to worn-out parents, and to children that are a big deal to God. The last test is for all of us. Which answer best describes your response to the little people noises in the worship service, which my son probably makes 90% of them? Um, When I have kids, they will never act like the Biles kids in worship service. (laughs) You got rid of them all. Is that how it happens? Then you can be respectable again in worship. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm waiting for that day. 
Uh, Redeemer needs a children's service so the adults can worship freely without the distraction of the kids. C, can't they control their kids? I think it's so selfish that they let their children be so immature in church. And then D, ah, I love that sound. It's music in the kingdom of God. How'd you do? How important is this passage? How important do you think it is? Um, How powerful is our passage today to shape our personal lives, our families, and future generations? And the life and culture of this church. How important is this passage? Mark scholar James Edwards said, if this passage wasn't here, if this passage didn't record one of the most distinguishing marks of Jesus' ministry, he says another gospel would have resulted and not that of Jesus. Another church would have been formed and not that of his church. Had children been kept from Jesus and had Christianity been made into something for men alone, we could say if Christianity had been made into something for adults alone, right, in our generation. How powerful is this passage. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And we thank you that you are at work in our lives. And uh, many of us here might be enduring. I ask, Lord, especially for them, as I ask for all of us, that you would encourage us greatly, uh, that your love endures forever, that your mercy endures forever, that your forgiveness endures forever, that what Jesus has done endures forever. So, O Lord, endure forever your love even now. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, chapter 10 started the turn, right? The turn toward Jerusalem, the turn towards Jesus' ultimate ministry, the cross and the resurrection. His ministry to the unchurched is done. His ministry to the church is done. He is now on the home stretch to Jerusalem, the home stretch to the cross and the resurrection. His teaching now is final stretch teaching in chapter 10. In other words, teaching that has to do with what he does, not what we do. Teaching that has to do with what we receive, not what we achieve. Teaching that is good news kind of teaching, not good advice kind of teaching. We're in it. And the first relational impact of the gospel has been on marriage and divorce. We saw that last week, or for two weeks. Today, it's children. So why children, though? What's the big deal about children? And then why should we care? I mean, what does it mean to you and me? We're not kids anymore. Maybe we have kids, so it's a semi-real need to us. But what if we don't? What if we're single? Uh, What if our kids are gone and grown? 
uh, what's the big deal and why does it matter about children? I want you to look at verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Now, this is how it begins. Notice it's just three short verses on children. It's typical Mark again, no details. We don't know who brought the children. We don't know what the occasion is. Is it a town hall meeting? Is it a birthday? Is it a 4th of July? No one knows. It's just happening because the emphasis of Mark's portrayal of Jesus is what Jesus does. It's what he's doing. Remember the first verse. This is the gospel of the Son of God, Son of Man, right? Mark wants us to see two things here. What Jesus is doing is culturally odd. It's not normal. Do you see that? See if you can find what he's doing. Try to think through what is identity in the ancient Near East. Where does importance come from in the ancient Near East in Jesus' day? Where did meaning in life come from? The individual or the family? The family. The family unit. So the family, and mostly the adult male family members, that's where identity comes from. Your identity comes from family importance. So if you want to find yourself, you find it in your family. If you want success, it's in family success. If you want a name, it's in family name. Today, where is it found? In the individual. Individual success, individual achievements, how you find your identity. It's how you find your importance. It's how you find your worth and your meaning and your value. So it's completely two different cultures today and then. In the ancient Near East, if your uncle, your brother, or worse yet, your father did something shameful, the whole family was shamed. The whole family had an identity crisis. The whole family suffered personal loss. But on the flip side, let's say your, your brother won the Greco-Roman wrestling championship in Palestine. If he won, you won. You got an identity boost from his achievement because identity is found in the family, not in the person or the individual. Now, there's some of that that goes on today, the family type stuff, or the identification with a larger group kind of stuff. I mean, let's think about Dallas Cowboy fans, right, who do something similar. I mean, like, say, in the 90s. I mean, Brent Bankston, you would have thought he won the Super Bowl. Yes. <laughs> he was so identified with the Dallas Cowboys. How about Dean Mitchell and the Rangers, Texas Rangers, right? What Jesus is doing is he's focusing so much attention on children here, and this is culturally odd because children do not contribute to identity, family identity, and family importance. They don't until they come of age, which is the age of 13. Now, we do know one particular child does contribute a lot to family identity, and what was that in the ancient Near East? The firstborn son. Why? Because then you knew your family would continue. Then you knew your life, your identity would continue for another generation. Okay? So James Edwards says, Children were, unavoid were an unavoidable interim between birth and childhood, or adulthood. One will search Jewish and early Christian literature in vain for sympathy toward the young, comparable to what Jesus is showing here. The second thing Mark wants you to see in this passage is children had the ability to reveal our self-importance. Notice how the disciples, they're back at it again, aren't they? 
I mean, good night. They're back to thinking they're more important than everyone else around them. Remember earlier we saw them in chapter 9. They're arguing about who's the greatest, outright doing it. I'm more important than you. No, I am more important to you. I mean, we do that in our thoughts. They were doing it verbally, out loud, right? And they also, remember, they thought they were more important than the unknown exorcist. He was actually doing something they couldn't do. He was actually helping and delivering people in bondage and oppression in Jesus' name, and they stopped him from doing it. They had honor hunger, and they had a craving for importance. And here we find the same thing. Now they're just too important for children. Notice the word rebuke. Do you see that? They rebuked them. We don't, again, don't know who the them is, but it sounds like they're rebuking the children and whoever brought them, which is probably the parents, right? That word rebuke is a strong word. You know how Mark's used it so far? Rebuking evil spirits. This is a strong, aggressive reaction coming from the disciples over them. Now, the disciples are not the only ones that struggle with feeling more important than children. I mean, we all do, don't we? Um, let's, Let's have an honest conversation. If some PCA leaders came up to me and said, Jeff, we have two crucial ministry calls that we want you to consider, but you can only pick one. We want you to plant a church in a major city. Okay? Two. We want you to start a children's ministry in a major city. Now, I know me, and I know that I'll go in and I'll pray about this, and I'll, uh, I'll start weighing and navigating God's call between those two cho- choices. And you know what I'll do? I know what I'll do. I will try to determine which one is more important. And I'll tell you it's not going to be the children's ministry. Why is it that they ruined my illustration up here? Why is it that mostly women serve in children's ministries? Did you see all the men that were up here? Man, I was so encouraged by that. Why is that? Let's take our church out of it. Why is that? Why most staff positions in women's ministry are ladies? Why are children pushed out of public worship today? I mean, we can do it um, programmatically, right? We can have parallel services separated from the adults just for the children that run parallel with what we're doing. That can happen programmatically, but it can also happen culturally. We can create a culture where our heart attitude is we look around when children are making noises with disapproving looks, right? Disapproving comments, uh, disapproving thoughts. Why do we do this? Because we're too important for children. And we might not, and why are we, why are we too important? Because I think it's like this. I think children sometimes get in the way of what we want. Children can be these unnatural, uncontrollable blockers to something we think we have to have. And because they get in the way and they block it, they get in the way. And we feel like we're too important. Our needs, our wants, our desires are more important than what's going on with them. Now, we would never say that, right? We would never say outright. We would say things like this. Children are a distraction to the worship God deserves. That's what we would say. We'd never say they're a distraction to us and our worship. It's, it's a distraction to the excellence and worship. That's what we would say. 
We'd also say things like, you know, children, they just have unique special needs, and so we need to meet those unique special needs. And we might say something like this, too. Listen, children, they just don't understand what you're saying anyway, Jeff. I don't understand what you're saying. How can they understand what you're saying? Right? Let's make something separate for them. So children have the unique ability to reveal your and my self-importance. I want you to look at verse 14 now. But when Jesus saw it, what they were doing, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of God. This is the only passage in all four Gospels where Jesus is said to be indignant. You know what that means? Really, really angry. And the emphasis on indignant is expressing your anger, not bottling it up and internalizing it or stuffing it. So in other words, Jesus is blowing a gasket. He's turned into Bob Knight, and everyone knows it. Okay, but why is Jesus so mad? What's the big deal again? Why? Why is this such a big deal? I mean, so the disciples aren't interested in starting a children's ministry. They just don't have the gifts for that. They don't have the personality for that. Why is this such a big deal? Here it is. I want you to look at this. There's three things. When you combine Jesus's anger, which we see in in verse 14, with Jesus's warm welcome to the children, and notice who he's welcoming them to. He's welcoming them to himself. He's welcoming them to the kingdom of God. Right? When you combine that, his anger, his welcome, and then look at verse 15. When you add that verse where he's basically saying, look, the ones that get me, the ones that receive the gospel, the ones that trust and treasure and hope in the kingdom of God, the ones that get me are the ones that come to me like a child. The ones that get me as a child. When you combine those three things, this is what you get. You add them all together, you get Jesus has nothing to do with self-importance. The gospel has nothing to do with self-importance. The kingdom of God has nothing to do with building a kingdom of self. Self-importance in the gospel are like oil and water. They just don't mix. We could also say it positively, and that's the way we have titled this thing. The weak get it. The needy get Jesus. The helpless get the gospel. The place of power, the place of the kingdom of God is giving up your power and your importance for someone else's. Okay? All right, now what happens if we become like children before Jesus? Let's say it happens and we do. We become like children before Jesus. We become needy like before Jesus. We become helpless and we become aware, deeply aware of how powerless we are and how unable. We're losing hope in our ability to help ourselves. What if we become like that before Jesus, before the grace of God, before the gospel? What happens? Side note, quickly. The word children, look, look, at the, look in your Bibles and find the word children. In the ancient language of Greek, that's paideon, not technon. So literally, we're talking about babies here, infants here. So I just want to throw something in for you to consider. Those of you that are wrestling through maybe some Presbyterian beliefs like infant baptism. 
throughout church history, this passage has been one of the most powerfully persuasive passages for infant baptism. Why? Because Jesus is blessing babies and infants. Baptism is all about blessing. Okay? So just push that out there a little bit, make you a little bit uncomfortable if you're not used to hearing that, but I like doing that. Some crazy reason I like uncomfortability. All right, now back to our question. What happens? What happens if we become like children before Jesus? What happens? If we become weak, you know what happens? Verse 16, look at it. We actually will take children into our arms. We will become instruments of gospel blessing to children. Why? Because our honor hunger will be finally satisfied in Jesus. Because our craving for importance will be finally satisfied in Jesus. Because the gospel will give us what we really need and we will no longer look for the counterfeit in ourself. And when that happens, children are no longer a barrier to importance. Because we're not concerned with our self-importance anymore. We have all the importance and all the honor we could ever have. And so now we just want to take them in our arms and we want to be an instrument of blessing to children and they don't have to give us a doggone thing back. They don't have to give us one lick, one item of identity or importance. We don't need them to feel important. Parents, this would change the culture of our homes. Do you know what our children desperately need to see and feel in our homes? Our children need to desperately see and feel in our homes that we parents are the biggest sinners in the home, not them. We are. That we lead the way in being weak, and we lead the way in being needy, and we lead the way in being a sinner who needs Jesus alone. If that happens, you know what else they need? They need to know that Jesus loves sinful children. They need to know that Jesus loves sinful children, not obedient children. That Jesus loves sinful children, not well-mannered children. That Jesus loves sinful, selfish, self-oriented, addicted to comfort and pleasure, demanding, disrespectful, disobedient children that Jesus loves sinful, messed up children. If this happens, you know what happens in the home? A whole culture shift changes. There's a culture of love and acceptance, which kind of embodies the gospel. And the dying death of judgment, accusation, and condemnation goes out the door. And that's a, that's a joyful house. Redeemer, what if we become like children before Jesus? As a church, what would that happen if more and more of us start becoming more and more weak before Jesus, more and more helpless before Jesus, more and more receiving instead of achieving before Jesus? What would happen? What would happen to the culture here? You know what would happen? The children of Redeemer would be all our children. We would all consider the call and the privilege of being instruments of gospel blessing in every child that comes through here. 
we would pray for them, we would love them, we would listen to them, we'd go and build relationships with them, we'd actually take a personal interest in a child and become their friend. I mean, we laugh about it, but I think one of the ways that this is, this kind of embodies the culture, who's heard of the candy lady in the church? The kids know who the candy lady is. That's the kind of culture. You got a candy lady, why? And the kids go to the candy lady. They know that they're going to get a treat. They know that someone actually is thinking of them, loving them. They are going to feel good somehow about the candy lady. So the children of Redeemer, what would happen for all of our children is they'd feel the warmth of the gospel here. Now what that means is this. They might not be able to memorize all the books in the Bible, and they might not be able to get all their catechism questions right, but they would feel deep down in their bones, and they would feel it for the rest of their life, things like this. When I'm at church, I feel loved and accepted. And that is just embedded into their little hearts. And no matter where they go and where they grow up and where they go, the church was warmth. The church loved me. The church was a place for acceptance. I feel loved by God, they will think. And the adults, wherever I am. I'm not judged, I'm not watched, I'm not condemned, I'm not accused when I'm at church. Even when I'm bad. The adults, deep in their bones, are going to say, you know what? I think the adults were the biggest sinners in the church, not me. And the last one, the adults help me see specific ways um, that I am a sinner. We don't avoid sin. But notice what happens. The adults now come alongside and they help the children see specific ways that they are sinful, specific ways that they rely on themselves and try to save themselves. But they do so as a fellow sinner who needs the same gospel and the same Jesus. Man, that is a great culture. How do we become like children How does that happen? How do we become weak? How do we become needy? How do we become helpless before Jesus, before the gospel? How do we receive the kingdom of God instead of trying to achieve the kingdom of God? How does that happen? Luther said this, hunger is the best cook. Hunger is the best cook. In an article called The Rabbi's Heart, the author said this, the evil operative within our within us resides in a relentless self-absorption therein lies the source of our cruelty our possessiveness our jealousy and every species of malice if we gloss over our selfishness and rationalize the evil within us we can only pretend we are sinners and therefore only pretend we have been forgiven a sham spirituality of pseudo repentance and pseudo bliss eventually fashions what modern psychology Psychiatry calls a borderline personality in which appearances make up for reality. Those who stop short of evil in themselves will never know what love is about. Unless and until we face our sanctimonious viciousness, we cannot grasp the meaning of reconciliation that Christ effected at the cross on Calvary. End quote. Now, that's a tall order. How do you face the evil within? How do you face, turn east into the wind of self-absorption and really, really understand who you really, really are? 
How do we do that? We will only do this if we see verse 16. He took you in His arms. He blessed you. He laid His hands on you. And He did so at the cross and the resurrection. In other words, at the cross, Jesus actually took your self-absorption and my self-absorption and He carried it away. He crushed it. He defeated it. And at the resurrection, He unleashes all the wonders of a finished, accomplished kingdom. Do you need faith? Ask for it. Do you need hope? Ask for it. Do you need to become humble? Ask for it. Do you need to learn how to receive and not achieve? Ask for it. See if I have anything else to say. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Yes. Jesus loves self-absorbed, self-important sinners because he died for them and he rose for them. He loves self-absorbed people. He rose, he died for you. So that means right now you are free to face the evil within. You are now free to be weak. You're free to be helpless. You're free to be needy. You're free to face what you're really like because you're free to stretch out your hands till your arms ache to Jesus and receive from Him, from the Gospel, all that you need and crave. So you're now free for real importance instead of self-importance. You're now free to receive real forgiveness instead of self-denial. You're now free to receive real love instead of self-love. The brothers and sisters, here it is. Become like children, because the weak get it. Amen.